All right, so we're starting new book, Second Thessalonians. I've been wanting to get to this. Um, we did First Thessalonians, but then family month came, and so I didn't preach for a long time on Sunday night, and uh, then I started another series, and so finally now getting to Second Thessalonians, and I've been anxious to get to these three chapters, and uh, just some things I in my personal study uh, that's been making me want to really get to these books and go through them, and uh, figure out everything there is to know about them. Not that anyone can ever know everything about the Bible, but always trying to learn. But some uh, helpful things, though, that I'm hoping to give you tonight, uh, especially when it comes to uh, studying Bible prophecy and making sure we are consistent in our interpretation. And that's what I, I want to do when it comes to my and how I interpret the Bible. I want to be consistent in my interpretation. I want to be able to do it without just going and buying some book on systematic theology where I let somebody tell me how to do it. I think at the end of the day, the key to rightly dividing the word of truth is not by getting a book telling you how to rightly divide, but it's by you just studying it yourself so you can kind of know how to take you know, each verse and each book. And so let me, I'm hoping to give you some things tonight that will be a help in this chapter, but just a little reminder before we start going through the chapter, this is a short chapter, but uh, the background of this book and what was going on. Now we talked a lot about this when we went through First Thessalonians, but Acts chapter 17 and 18, that's where we have the Apostle Paul. He's preaching in Berea, he preaches in Thessalonica, and everywhere they're going, the Jews are coming and throwing a big fit. They persecuted them like crazy. They uh, they ran them out of town, and when they were in Thessalonica, uh, the Jews did. And then Paul goes over to Berea. Things are going pretty good in Berea. Uh, the town's receiving them well. But the Jews find out about it, so the Jews decide they're going to come over there and start spreading their fake news like they've been doing for the last 2,000 years, and then they get everybody stirred up against Paul there. But when Paul had left Thessalonica, he, he had left uh, Timothy and Silas behind to just kind of do uh, some work there, and then he remained at Athens waiting for them to come join them. And so the, uh, it's, it's hard to know exactly how much time has passed. We can only guess. And, and, and honestly, I don't even have a real good guess. But um, one thing we do know, both First and Second Thessalonians, they start out the same way, where it says Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus. So, uh, I, and I believe, and I'm not 100% sure, but I'm probably 99.9% sure, Silvanus is Silas. I believe it's just another name for Silas, just like Timothy and Timotheus are the same person. And I think that he uh, greeted these people with his own name like he always did in his epistles, but he also included Silas and Timothy because they all knew Silas and Timothy because, they, of course, they knew Paul. He was the one that kind of started things there. But when he had to leave, he had left Silas and Timothy there for a while until they came with him in Athens. So the chances are there's probably not been a big space of time between both of these letters. But... If you remember from 1 Thessalonians and from the book of Acts, this church, while it was a young church and a new church just getting started, I mean, while they probably had some issues, they they were on the right track. They were doing good. Uh, they were a great example of what everyone wants to see in a new believer. And the Apostle Paul, he's going to talk about it here in this book. I mean, he, he, he bragged on these people. You know, and it's like every pastor, they love to like brag on those new converts they got in their church that were just like all drunks and, you know, just rotten and all this stuff. And then they're like cleaning their act up and, you know, living right. And, you know, they're not shacking up anymore. And they got married and, you know, uh, you know, he got rid of his earrings and all, you know, we all, we love talking about all that stuff. Right. And that's kind of how these people were, you know, and they, they still probably had some rough edges, 
But they were. They were doing good. They were doing the right thing, even though they were being persecuted. So Paul, he's, he's writing both of these letters to encourage them. And one of the themes that we saw in 1 Thessalonians that gets carried into this book is this constant reminder that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And not only is he going to come back for them, but he's also going to punish their enemies. And it's okay to want justice. It's okay to do that. It is a good thing. So uh, this church, it is. It's under intense persecution. This is a rough area. It's rougher than where the Bereans were. Uh, you remember when we talked about that? And so things haven't really changed as we go into Second Thessalonians. So something that's very important that we need to understand when reading Paul's letter. And this is especially going to be important next week. All right? If you all can get this, this is going to help you a lot in Bible prophecy or when you're listening to somebody just teach you know, false junk you know, about Bible prophecy. If you're listening to a pre-tribber, I can guarantee he's always going to do the kind of thing that I'm going to talk about here. But something that's very important and is... Paul's epistles, y'all understand, these were letters written to the Thessalonian church, right? Now, that the pre-tribbers, they love to bring up all the time, well, who was that book written to? It was written to the Jews, right? And then they tell you it has like some special meaning, you know, and therefore, you know, don't pay attention to timelines and things like that because that's just for the Jews, right? That's what they like to do. But here's the thing you got to understand too. There is some truth to that. Who the book is written to does matter. The time they were in matters. All those things matter. And we got to remember, this book is written, or this letter is written to a specific church. So there's going to be things that Paul brings up and that he mentions that they are going to understand that you and I, who were not there, might not fully grasp. For example, and he doesn't really do it in this book, but for example, when he's, in other letters, when he's telling them to greet certain people. Okay, what does that mean to us? We don't know who those people are. And, you know, how are we going to obey that command to greet that person? Because they're dead. So, you know, the truth is, no, that was something he told them to do. Okay? And we need, to, we need to understand, too, that sometimes in these letters, okay, while there are references to the return of Christ, these letters are not him giving detailed information on end times and how things are going to play out. He's referring to these events and there are might, there might be some truths that we can pick up from that. But at the end of the day, he is just referring to these things. He is not describing these events in detail. Now, examples where end times events are described in detail would be like Matthew 24, where Jesus is literally describing end times. That's what he's doing at the Olivet Discourse. So that's a great place to go when trying to figure out end times and how things are going to play out. The book of Revelation is the best place that you can go to figure, the, to figure out how things are going to play out. But what we're seeing the pre-tribbers do, they go to these books and they start, you know, they'll take references where he's just referring to this event. And then they start drawing all kinds of crazy conclusions that end up contradicting what we read in Revelation, Matthew 24, and we'll talk a lot about that as we go through these things. But at the end of the day, we've got to remember, this letter is written to a very specific church. There's going to be some things that 
would have meant something to them that aren't really going to mean anything to us because of the fact that we weren't there. So when he refers to something he told them about, they would know what he's talking about, but we don't. So we don't get to insert our own facts in there. Y'all understand? So uh, we'll, we'll probably talk more about that next week, but because we do, we want to be careful. We don't take too many liberties with how we interpret certain difficult passages and then apply meanings that Paul never intended. We don't want to do that. Sometimes we just need to admit, you know, there's some things we don't know. We might not ever find out and just uh, get what, you know, we're supposed to get from it. So let's go ahead and start going through chapter one. And notice it says in verse one, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians in God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is remember, this is not written to all of Thessalonica but it's written to the church in Thessalonica. This is not written to Liberty Baptist Church, but it doesn't mean we can't pick up a few things. It doesn't mean we can't learn some things and that it's not profitable uh, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, righteousness. Okay, It's still profitable, but it is not written to Liberty Baptist Church. Keep that in mind. So verse 2, Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, Brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. So the things that they were challenged with in the last letter, we see that they are, you know, and that they're doing these things. Paul's, you know, probably heard some things since he wrote that letter, and he's finding out, man, these people, they're growing, they're they're learning, they're they they did the things that I told them to do. And the last letter. And so, you know, whenever, if you're a preacher too, and you find out there's somebody out there that are listening to you and they're doing what you say and they're succeeding, it just makes you want to give them more help. But then you have those other people, they don't listen to anything you say. And it's like, you know what, forget them. <laughs> they're not going to listen to a single thing I say. But you know what, the, this church, they did. And it's the same thing too with the Corinthian church. We see uh, in 1 Corinthians, I mean, he's getting all over that church for all kinds of things. But we also see in 2 Corinthians, He's writing them another letter because he found out, hey, they did, they did all those things that I told them to do. And they encouraged him to write them another letter. Maybe Galatians and Ephesians and those guys, maybe they didn't listen to him. That's why they only got one. I don't know. I'm just, uh, but at the same time, you know, it's just, it's just uh, you know, interesting to think about sometimes. I don't, I'm not saying that's the case. But I notice in verse 4, it says, so that we ourselves glory in you. Okay, and glory it is. It kind of means to brag or boast. That's what that word means. He says, we glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. So again, let's just, another reminder for the pre-tribbers who just assume that tribulation equals the wrath of God. Remember, when the Bible says God hath not appointed us to wrath, he said that to the Thessalonians who were in tribulation, who were enduring persecution. And yet at the same time, we have clowns out there who say, because we are post-tribbers, that we believe that God is a wife beater, which is just absolutely ridiculous. If that... Because the thing is, we don't claim that the supernatural events like, you know, the seven vials and the seven trumpets, you know, we don't believe we're here for those things. But we do believe we are here for the tribulations, for the persecutions, 
for the Antichrist. We do believe we're here for that. And if that is Jesus Christ slapping his bride, then he slapped the Apostle Paul. He slapped the Thessalonians. He's been slapping his bride for the last 2,000 years. That is one of the dumbest arguments that the pre-tribbers make against us. And I just have to laugh when they bring that kind of thing up. I see a desperate person there. I see someone who cannot defend their theology and therefore they have to throw out outrageous accusations because they just clearly are wrong. So again, this church, the church that God said you've not been appointed to wrath to was one that was in persecutions. In fact, the Apostle Paul bragged on them because of their patience and faith. Here is the patience of the saints. That's what it calls says about those in Revelation who don't take the mark of the beast. When Christians remain faithful under persecution, patience is a word that's often used to describe that. And I think the greatest example of the patience of the saints is going to be when the mark of the beast system is rolled out. And obviously, uh, you know, this was a bad uh, thing here. It wasn't, you know, as bad as the tribulation of the mark of the beast, but it was tribulation. It was persecution. And so he's commending them for their patience and faith. And Paul was the reason too. I believe Paul was glorying in these people and telling everybody about these people was he was using them as inspiration for other churches. And I'm going to be repeating a lot of things that we repeated in 1 Thessalonians, but Paul repeated it, so I have to if I'm going to be actually preaching Paul's letter. But again, you know, it is encouraging, you know, if you're struggling to know others are struggling too. Nobody wants to be the only church going through hard times. You know, and, and I don't wish persecution on other churches. I don't wish that at all. You know, but at the same time, when you see other people going through persecution, it makes you feel pretty good, doesn't it? And you know, in our church, we've dealt with some stuff, but you know, we haven't been protested. We haven't had our church blown up. You know, we haven't had a lot of the things that other people have had. And you know, I'm not glad those things have happened to other people at all. I, I'm not glad about that at all. But at the same time, it helps you not feel sorry for yourself if you're going through a little something. You know, the first time we got a major attack on our church, you know, it was really hard for me to feel bad when while we're getting hammered and just getting attacked like crazy online, I was literally with Pastor Anderson. It's just like, how do you feel sorry for yourself in that situation? Because, you know, I mean, you know, here's a guy that, you know, that's every Tuesday for him, you know, and it's just like, and so I remember, you know, during that, I was just like, I'm not glad he ever, you know, he went through any of those attacks, but at the same time, it made me able to stand strong and not feel sorry for myself and endure. And I'm thankful for people who've, you know, set the example and people who've, you know, been shown in a negative light on the news and all that kind of thing. I'm thankful that I've been able to see that and that they've endured it and done good. And even though I don't want to wish it to happen to them, thank God for them. It helps other people. So understand that's how it was for this Thessalonian church. They're going through all these terrible things, but because of the fact that they were faithful through it and they had done all these wonderful things, it ended up being a blessing and helping many other churches. So, th so, so always remember that when you're going through a hard time, whether it be 
you know, for your faith or whether you're just going through a difficulty in your personal life, whether you're going through some kind of sickness, some kind of trial, a loss of a family member, nobody wishes that on you. You know, that's sad. We don't want to see that. But if you can endure that, if you can be faithful through all that, you know what? You're going to help a whole lot of people. Because if you're being faithful through cancer, is, chances are everybody else in this church, when we get a hangnail or something, we're not going to feel sorry for ourselves. And understand, when you go through those difficulties and you are faithful, when you keep a good spirit, it helps everybody. And don't ever forget that. It's not just you. And you know what the devil wants you to do whenever you're going through a challenge and a difficulty? He wants you to think you're all by yourself. That's, what, just, that's the devil telling you that. He wants you to think you're the only one that's ever gone through anything. You're the only one suffering. You're in this thing alone. And I'm telling you, you're not in this thing alone. You know, and hopefully we do a good job encouraging you and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you have the ability when you're going through that difficulty to be a blessing to a lot of people. If you keep going, there's a good chance other people are going to keep going when they go through difficulties too. So, you know, I'm not asking the Lord for any trials, but if one comes, you know what? Use it as an opportunity. Use it as an opportunity to make a difference. And that's what this Thessalonian church had done. And we're still encouraged by them to this day because they endured. And I'm thankful that we have testimonies like this. I'm thankful for the, uh, the testimonies you know, of people that I know personally. It makes a difference. It means something. So let's remember again, so this church, they're in tribulation, but they're not under the wrath of God. This church is doing good. This is a church that Paul bragged about and told everybody about. This was a church that uh, was an inspiration to others, but it was being persecuted. And so notice this in verse 5. And it says, which is, so let's go back to verse 4 because it kind of is all one sentence here. So it says that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Okay, now there's a lot to unpack here in these two verses. So first off, what does it mean to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God? And what is that? That kind of sounds like you got to earn it, doesn't it? To be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, remember, we are reading a letter that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. Okay, you know, keep, keep that in mind. So if Paul is in writing these people a very personal letter and he's, t- you know, he's encouraging them and he talks about how, you know, them being counted worthy for the kingdom of God. And remember, too, he said, I've been using you as an example. I've been glorying in you, in the churches. Do we now get to throw out other passages that make it really clear that salvation, it's not of works? The kingdom of God, you must be born again. We don't get get to do that. Anybody who would just take a verse like this and then use that to say, see, you have to be worthy. Well, here's the problem with that. Can you define how I need to be worthy of the kingdom of God, you know, from this passage, what I have to do to earn it or anything like that. You know, what's this talking about exactly? So I believe what Paul's clearly saying here to be counted worthy or accounted worthy, it's just considered worthy. 
I think, that, I think that's basically all it means. Considered by others, not God. Again, that's like what we see in James 2. You know, I believe it's talking about, um, you know, being an example to other people with your faith. You know, sh- showing other people that you know, you ha- you're saved. It helps if you act like it, doesn't it? We should want other people to look at us and think of us as Christians. Shouldn't we want that? Should we want to look like and act like and be considered somebody who's going to heaven based on our actions and our works? Obviously, we are not going to justify ourselves to a holy God by our works, but we might be able to other people to get them to look at us and say, you know what, those are believers right there. Those are actual followers of Christ. And so I believe what Paul's saying right here when he's talking about them being counted worthy of the kingdom of God, which you also suffer, is he was just you know telling them, keep it up. You know, don't because I believe if this church would have just given up and quit, I believe they'd still gone to heaven because they were saved. But at the same time, it would have been a horrible example to everybody. They wouldn't have been an inspiration to other people. And I believe the fact that they endured and that they acted like Christians and they had all that faith and they were doing these good works. It ended up being an inspiration to others and causing other people to end up getting saved. And so I, I think we should all strive to be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, not by God. We know we can't do that, but by other people. And because and, and, at the end of the day, too, what is it that we have to go on when it, when it comes to judging someone's salvation? Obviously, we want a good testimony, but people can learn to repeat back facts. People can learn what they're supposed to say when it comes to salvation. You know, there's enough people too. you know, somebody can come in here and fake us out about whether or not they're saved. They've watched enough of the preaching online. They've listened, watched enough of my videos. They know what they're supposed to say, but people say they're saved all the time and later just turn out to be crazy heretics. So at the end of the day, what do we really have to go off of in the long term that will tell us that person saved or if, or, uh, to, especially at the end of their life, because you know that, especially when it's a family member, Okay. When it's a family member, you want to see something. You want to see some kind of fruit, don't you? You don't want them to just repeat back a fact and then 50 years goes by and you never see them do one thing for God. They're living a wicked life. They're drunk. They're just you know shacking up. They're doing all these terrible things. And then they go to their grave. You know what? You're always going to wonder, aren't you? But if that person, they were living for God, they had a good testimony, you know what? You, with, you're going to have more confidence when it comes time to put them in the ground. You know what? This was a believer. This person was saved. And uh, I'm going to see them in heaven one of these days. It's not us claiming a work salvation. We don't believe in work salvation. But, you know, I do believe to a certain extent in a works justification towards man. Okay? You know, a proof of salvation. If we don't ever see anything, we're always going to wonder, aren't we? Because we don't know what's going on in people's heads. Anybody can anybody can say a prayer, but we're all we're all looking for that. And so I do. I believe that's what Paul was talking about here. Uh, he, he was their their te- I believe their testimony um, caused others to see them as good examples of those who are saved. They're like those are Christians right there. That's that doesn't mean when we do when we say that about somebody. That's a Christian right there. Based on their works, it's not us teaching to work salvation. That's us saying, that's how a Christian acts. 
That's how a saved person is supposed to be. Saved people should be like Christ. That's just a fact. Saved people should act like Him. So notice too what He said in verse 5. After He talks about the, uh, the persecutions and tribulations ye endure, He says, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Now what does that mean? Okay. So in the previous letter, Paul had explained how the wrath of God was coming on the Jews. The persecution they had brought on the church, it was going to cause God to bring major tribulations on them that would be an example to the world that you don't mess with God's people. And, I, and so that, what, what the manifest token there, okay? You know, what's a token? Like you could say a wedding ring is a token that says you're married, okay? It's something that we can look at and say you're married, okay? So what this token here, the token of the righteous judgment of God is when God judges those and God punishes those who mess with his people. Okay? That is a token of the righteous judgment of God. Okay, So, here's the question. Did this happen in that generation or is it something that's yet to come? Because okay? I do believe that generation of Jews, I mean, they did. They came under the judgment of God Big time in 70 AD. I believe that uh, the judgment that came, the destruction of Jerusalem, I do believe that that was a manifest or a revealed token of the righteous judgment of God. Let me tell you, they had it coming. Okay? They had it coming. It was not like the persecution that come on Christians. Okay, The persecution that came on Christians, God says, I'm gonna judge, God's going to judge the world one of these days for how they treated Christians. But the judgment that came on Israel, that was God's judgment on them for killing Jesus Christ. Now, I believe the judgment for persecuting Christians is something that's going to come later. And I believe that also is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. But at the same time, so when Paul made that statement to him, okay, talking about punishing those who persecute his people. That's the manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. He said, I do believe it did happen in that generation, but it also didn't. Because often, God brings judgment on this world as a reminder of what's to come. And I believe that's what happened in 70 AD. Okay? But the ultimate display, the ultimate display of the righteous judgment of God, it is, it is yet to come. And I believe ultimately that's what Paul's talking about, because that's what we're about to see him start talking about in these next verses. He's talking about the coming judgment of God that is going to come on this world and it's going to tell everyone that God is a righteous judge. Because our world is begging for judgment. It's been begging for it for a long time. And God is going to prove His righteousness when He wipes these people out. A lot of people think God's mean because of that. Oh, what a terrible God that's going to kill all those people in Armageddon. No, that actually proves He's righteous. That proves that we have a righteous and a holy and a just God. All those people you see dying in Revelation proves that God is a righteous judge. Because there is no way this kind of stuff that we see going on in this world is going to go unpunished. There is no way. Now, and, and God does. Throughout the Bible and throughout history, God has given tokens of His righteous judgment. For example, the great flood. That was a token of the righteous judgment of God. The world had that coming. Sodom and Gomorrah. 
was a token of the righteous judgment of God. And, and let me tell you something. We've been having these gay pride, bag pride, whatever you want to call it, parades and things going on in this country for a long time. And I haven't seen any fire and brimstone fall yet. But I'm telling you, it's going to. It's going to happen. All this junk that we see going on, the persecution of churches, whatever, you know, it's going to be dealt with. God is going to do something about it. You know, and I was, I was just thinking about this today, too. You know, I, it, it, it amazes me that they haven't caught the people who, you know, bombed the church in L.A. Because let me, when it comes to bombings and things like that, especially hate crimes, they're usually all over that stuff, aren't they? I mean, they've got videos of these people, and yet they haven't found them yet. You know why? It's because I don't think they really care out there. That's why I don't think they really care about it. And you know, and a part of me is just like, that really makes me mad because those people need to be dealt with. But I'm here today to tell you that they will be dealt with. And it's worse if God has to deal with them. So, you know, if we really do want to wish bad on these people, maybe we better wish that the FBI doesn't get a hold of them. Because if they don't, God will. And, uh, you know, that's not going to be pretty. You know, either way, they're going to hell. So, I mean, for eternity. So, I mean, what, you know, who cares if they get a few more years of pleasure and, you know, breathing this air in this earth? They get, they got eternity and hell coming. So, and, and, and you know what? Hell and the lake of fire, the great white judgment, a great white throne of judgment. That's also a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. And we often don't understand that, you know, I mean, that, and I'll, I'll just admit it. Sometimes I think about hell and I think that seems a little extreme, but you know why? Because I'm not holy. I'm not as righteous as God. So that might seem a little harsh to me because I don't see sin as God sees it because I'm a sinner. But I do know that God is a righteous and holy and a just God. And so hell is not extreme. Hell is what, what people deserve. And I, but I believe that by faith. And so at the end of the day, though, the righteous, the, the ultimate token of the righteous judgment of God is what's going to be coming uh, when he pours out his wrath on this earth. But I am thankful that every once in a while, God reminds us that God gives us little reminders when God does deal with, you know, places and people and things on this earth that have just been begging for judgment. God gives us those little reminders and, you know, I don't think it's wrong to every once in a while I'll pray and ask God, hey, Lord, can you send another reminder? You know, one more, you know, Lord, can you please, you know, remind uh, everybody, you know, remind them in San Francisco <laughs> about your righteous judgment. Now, God doesn't have to do that right now to prove to me he's righteous because he's, he's going to deal with them. But, you know, it doesn't mean I, I wouldn't like mind seeing it a little early. Washington, D.C., you know, just... One more token, you know, just just because. <laughs> and, you know, and, and God won't do it the way I want. God won't pick the cities that I'll pick because, again, he's a righteous judge. I'm not. So uh, I, I'm fine with leaving that up to God. He knows how to take care of these things. But uh, I, I like that verse where it talks about how uh, that's a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. Punishing those or recompensing. I like the way he says it. Recompensing tribulation to them that trouble you and tribulation and trouble is kind of the same word in, in a lot of ways and so god says i'm going to recommend uh, recompense tribulation on them that trouble you so 
Uh, that, that's a good thing. And it said, so uh, look at verse 7. Uh, well, before we get to verse 7, we also need to remember too, in 1 Thessalonians, I think we proved very clearly that every reference to the coming of Christ, it was always talking about the rapture and not Armageddon. And I do, I believe we're still talking about the rapture right here. I don't think there's any doubt about it. We're, we're ta- when he starts talking about Christ's return right here, this is talking about the rapture, not Armageddon. So verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So notice, now again, Paul is not explaining the details of Christ coming here. He's referring to the coming of Christ here. And so when Paul mentions things like the fact that there's going to be mighty angels with him, okay, we can assume that, okay, uh, the coming of Christ is going to be one that's going to involve his mighty angels. Okay? Now that actually lines up with what we read in Matthew 24 when it says he shall send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So that goes along with Matthew 24. In fact, that kind of proves what we believe, that Matthew that the rapture is in Matthew 24. Now the pre-tribbers try to tell us, no, that's talking about Armageddon, that's talking about a Jewish rapture. Okay? Well, uh, I don't, I don't believe in, you know, that's the case at all. But it, here's the thing about that. All of 1 Thessalonians was always about the rapture. It was always about the rapture. It was never about Armageddon. Now, here we are in 2 Thessalonians, and he's telling this church to wait for this, to watch for this. Okay? And this creates a problem for the pre-tribbers who act like Matthew 24 is not the rapture. He specifically mentions mighty angels in here uh, during this time. And so Christ, uh, so this, uh, and, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he mentions too how we're going to be caught up. Well, caught up by what? Well, I think it's safe to say by the angels based on Matthew chapter 24. So, Verse 8 says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to obey the gospel? Because somebody else might take this and say, that proves work salvation. But here's the thing about work salvation. Works salvation, what, what what that ultimately means is you trying to earn salvation by the works of the law. And you have goofballs out there that when you start saying things like call on the name of the Lord, they've decided that's a work. Really, can you explain to me what law in the Old Testament tells us that the way to you know, achieve righteousness you know, through goodness is by calling on the Lord? That's not what it teaches in the Old Testament. Okay? We don't achieve righteousness or we don't achieve goodness and, you know, to, we don't achieve being worthy of salvation, you know, simply by saying a prayer. We actually, you know, it was by keeping all the law, isn't it? Okay, the calling on God for salvation, that's what we do when we're begging for mercy. That's what we do when we're just trusting in God and trusting his goodness. But people today, they want to go so extreme on no works that they start taking things like calling on the Lord and making it a work, which is ridiculous. And then you have the Calvinists that kind of do the same thing too, 
where we'll tell people, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they'll act like, well, believing's work too. You're saying you've got to do something. We believe salvation, it's all of, of Christ, and therefore, He makes you believe. You know, He does it all for you. Okay, and that's ridiculous too, because of the fact, we have this verse here that talks about those who obey, not the gospel. So how do I obey the gospel? Well, the gospel is, Jesus paid for your sins, believe on Him. So when you don't believe, you know what you did? You disobeyed the gospel. And that doesn't mean the fact that I obeyed the gospel that all of a sudden now I'm teaching a work salvation. Because belief is literally to repent of dead works and to trust in God. So don't let people do these weird things. There's, it's, all, it's always these... you know, And most of the people too who teach this a lot of this stuff, I see a lot of new Christians... You know, that, uh, and these are typically the kind of people, too, that get thrown out of their church within a short time, where they do, they, they, they get saved, you know, they got figured out how to get saved on the internet, and then they just come waltzing into some church, they already know more than, than the pastor, and then before you know it, they're more hardcore than he is on salvation, not being of works, to where they think believing is a work and calling on the Lord is a work. That is absolutely ridiculous. That makes no sense at all. And, you know, and then you've got the Calvinists, who act like they're smarter than everybody, and then they do, they do it so much, they act like even believing is a work. But no, it is disobedience to not believe the gospel. We have been told to believe the gospel. God expects us to believe the things that He tells us. And you know what God has told us? God has told us, trust in my Son, Jesus Christ. Believe on Him, and when people don't do it, they disobey. So don't let that word obey there scare you. It's still not teaching a work salvation. It's just telling us to believe. That's exactly what we believe. That's exactly what we teach. And then and that's a good verse too to use against Calvinists when they try to act like believing is a work, which is really dumb. That's it. Just it makes no sense at all. So when Jesus comes back, um, well, and look at verse ten too. Notice what it says in verse ten of Second Thessalonians one. It says, "When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired." in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So right there, Paul is telling them, you know, the reason that they're going to be there is because our testimony was believed in that day. He's coming to be admired. Jesus, when he returns, he's coming to be admired in all them that believe. Now, again, how in the world can you take this passage where the, where the Apostle Paul is talking about Jesus Christ returning, his, his mighty angels being with them, just like we see in Matthew chapter 24, and then act like Matthew 24 is not the rapture. It just it, it really blows my mind. Or to even act like this is talking about Armageddon. But why would he tell these people to be waiting for Armageddon if they're going to be getting raptured seven years before Armageddon? It doesn't make any sense. So, you know, these people, they don't have a leg to stand on anything if they would actually use all of the verses about the coming of Christ in First and Second Thessalonians. But they like to cherry pick and use Schofield uh, for when the Bible doesn't say what they need it to say. And we'll talk about that by next week. But look at Revelation 6, 12. So, because it says in verse 8, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be intense. And you know what else? It's not going to be a secret. Does this look like he's describing a secret event right here? 
It says he's coming back. He's coming back and flaming fire. Taking vengeance. Okay? This is going, when Jesus comes back, you know what? Every eye is going to see him. Everybody's, everybody's going to know. Where in the world do they get the secret rapture? The fact that people are still teaching this, there, there's, just, there's no way to twist the scripture to make this event in 2 Thessalonians 1 not the rapture. Okay? There's no doubt about it whatsoever. 2 Thessalonians 1 is talking about the rapture and there is nothing indicating it's going to be some kind of secret event. We're, you know, and that we're, we're just going to get just banished like that and everybody's going to blame aliens. That is not what the Bible teaches. Look what it says in Revelation 6.12. Man, I'm, I'm going way too slow for this. I need to get moving. It says, And I beheld, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of the fair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree cast their untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. This does not seem like a very secret event, does it? This seems like, this seems... Pretty obvious, something big's going on. It says, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Now I understand there's a lot of details in there that we don't see in Second Thessalonians, but that's a pretty intense event right there. You're going to have a tough time convincing me that that is not Jesus coming back in flaming fire taking vengeance. Paul, you know, he when he's explaining this event here, he's not trying to describe the details, but he is referring to something that he has taught them about. And he's just talking about being ready. God's going to judge your enemies. He's going to come back, and he's coming back in flaming fire taking vengeance. I'm pretty sure that's what we're seeing there in Revelation chapter 6. You're going to have a real hard time convincing me that's not it. So when Jesus Christ comes back, it's not going to be a secret. Everybody's going to know that it's everybody's going to know that it's him. It says in Revelation 9 verse 20. I mean if if, us, if they flat out said, "Hide us from him that sitteth on the throne." Not from the space aliens. Okay? Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. That the great day of his wrath is come. So Revelation 9.20 says, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. So notice, uh, when these people are being punished, they're not repenting. Okay? They're not repenting, which tells me they knew they were supposed to, and they're not. Okay? And then in, in uh, chapter 16, verse 9, it says, And the men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. They know who's doing this. And they're blaspheming him. When God's wrath is being poured out on this world, the world will know who is judging them. But they're not repenting. You know why? Because the wrath of God, it's not meant to make people repent. It's meant to punish them. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people were repenting in the floods in Noah's day. 
But they weren't getting saved when they were repenting then because God, God was judging them. When the judgment starts to fall, it's, it's too late at that point. And that's why, too, when we get to chapter 2, it talks about God sending them a strong delusion. They'll believe a lie. When God starts pouring his wrath out, it's too late at that point. It's too late. And these people aren't repenting. So, and, said, and the reason they're not going to repent, it's because they are not meant to repent. This is judgment. This is God's judgment on the world. Now is the day of salvation. So in chapter 2, we'll talk about the strong delusion. But notice verse 9, it says, Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So notice when it's talking about Jesus Christ, His coming, it's talking about His coming, it's talking about His judgment. It says that He's, uh, it mentions, it's from His glory and power. It is God's power and glory that's destroying these people. Which reminds me of a passage in Matthew 24 in verse 29 where it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the coming Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with the sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, I guarantee you, Paul had taught his people about the Olivet Discourse. I guarantee he taught them about it. But in Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul never does like the Olivet Discourse where he lays out the events. But he does refer to the coming of Christ often. And it's interesting because when Paul makes all these references to the coming of Christ, he is constantly saying things that we see in Matthew chapter 24. He's, but because Paul reveals additional details in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15, the dispensationalists act like he's revealing another rapture. No, Paul is never revealing the rapture. He's just often talking about the rapture. But, or he refers to the rapture. Because in 1 Thessalonians 4, you know what he's really talking about? How the dead in Christ are going to rise. And you know when the dead in Christ rise? At the return of Christ. But Matthew 24, Jesus isn't talking about the resurrection. That's not the main thing. He's talking about judgment on Israel. He's talking about the tribulation. He's talking about His coming. That's ultimately what He's talking about. And same thing too in 1 Corinthians 15. People act like, Behold, I show you a mystery. Therefore, everything He's talking about here, nobody knew about before. No, the mystery was not the coming of Christ. It was the changed body. Jesus didn't go through the details of the changed body in the Olivet Discourse, but Paul talks about how our body is going to be changed. He's, he's not writing about you know, the timeline of events at Christ's coming. He's writing about the changed body. That's what he's doing. He's describing the resurrection and how when we rise, we're not going to rise in the body that died. It's going to be a new and a glorified body. So do you see how dispensationalists are taking these things and that, you know, they don't realize there's different subjects being talked about. And the Apostle Paul, whenever he refer, you know, uh, talks about the coming of Christ, people try to use his writings as the blueprint for end times. But the Apostle Paul never wrote specifically laying out a blueprint for the events. He just often referred to them. And based on all the references he makes, it happens to line up with the blueprint that he had at that time, which was Matthew chapter 24. That actually is describing... The details of these events, Paul constantly makes, and we're going to see a lot more of that when we look at 2 Thessalonians 2. 
that just lines up perfectly with what we see in Matthew 24. But I mean, Paul's using a lot of the same terminology that Jesus used here. And there's just, there's no way, there's just no way around this. So the pre-tribbers, when you, when you show them these things, you know, it forces them to say in second Thessalonians, about second Thessalonians one, this isn't our rapture, but it's a Jews rapture. But at the same time too, they'll take these passages where Paul's telling people to watch for these events and say that proves imminency. So they got to pick which one they want. They're going to have to throw out one of their pet doctrines. Are they going to throw out the rapture for the Jews? Or are they going to throw out imminency? Because you can't have both. And the truth is, neither of those are in the Bible. So verse 10, When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So how is he glorified in his saints? Okay, he's talking about being glorified in his saints. Now, he just refers to that. He does not explain this. In 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul does not explain how Jesus is glorified in his saints. But there's no doubt the people he's writing to knows what that is and what he's talking about there. What is that event where he's glorified in his saints? That is when he changes our vile body into one like his glorious body. And this is more evidence that the secret rapture is a fraud. And proof that we're talking about the rapture here. We're not talking about Armageddon. Because look what it says in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Right now, if you believe on Christ, you're saved. Right now. Right now you're a son of God, but it does not yet appear uh, what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, appear at his appearing. They try to say his appearing is Armageddon too. No, when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Are we going to be like him at the rapture? Are we going to be like him when we come back at Armageddon? No, we're going to be like him when we see him. So that's what 1 John 3, it teaches a transformation, a change. We don't have time to go there. Daniel 12 does the same thing. When it's talking about the resurrection, it talks about the uh, shining like the brightness of the firmament. That's definitely a change right there. In the body, when he's talking about the resurrection. In Titus 2, 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Some will say, well, the blessed hope, that's a rapture, but the glorious appearing is Armageddon. Well, then how do we look for the glorious appearing? How do we do that if we're going to be in heaven for all that and we're coming back with him? How do we watch for the glorious appearing then? That doesn't make sense. We're supposed to be looking for both of those things. And his appearing, I mean, you're going to say that's not his appearing in 1 John 3. In 1 John 3, when it says he appears, we're going to be like him. That's not the glorious appearing. Hey, I, I'm sorry, folks. If you're still pre-trib after all this, it's just because you're not listening. And that's the thing. Most of these pastors who are still pre-trib, they haven't li listened. They listen to Sam Gipp debunk some straw men. You know, but they haven't listened uh, to anybody actually give a, a good presentation. And proof of that is nobody has even tried to do a rebuttal where they actually represent the position accurately. If we're wrong, they should be able to accurately represent our position and then present their evidence. But nobody even represents it correctly. Why? 
because if they represented it correctly, they would probably get converted to our side. That would mean if if they represented us correctly, it would mean they had seen an accurate representation of what we believe. So I can't. I'm telling you, I've yet to see anybody do that. It shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be hard to accurately represent, but yet they don't do it. So Christ appearing is the rapture. There's no doubt. Second Thessalonians 1:11. Wherefore also we pray for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, and it should, it, I believe it's a desire of every pastor and even every Christian who leads someone to Christ to see those that they've reached faithfully serving Christ at His return. I think that's what we all want to see. I want to see all of you faithfully serving God when he returns. I believe we're all going to be in heaven no matter what, but it's not a guarantee. If you're saved, you're going to be there. But there's no guarantee you're going to be faithful. You're going to be found faithful. And that should be something we're all shooting for. We constantly see that this theme of remaining faithful to the end and being found faithful at Christ's return. We constantly see this in the Bible. And it's never so we will go to heaven. That's not it. Never in, anywhere in the Scriptures is it encouraging us to be faithful so we will go to heaven. I don't care how bad Sam Gip messes up Matthew 24, he didn't do it at the end, she'll be saved. Okay, I don't care how bad he messes that up. Nowhere is that taught. There is nothing we can do to lose our salvation, but there are things we can do to lose the better, a better resurrection. Because look at what we see in Hebrews 11, 35, you have to turn there. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And you know, when Jesus Christ comes back, I want to be faithful. Or if I die before He comes back, I want to have died faithful. I believe when we do, we will have a better resurrection. As a result, that's what it's talking about there in Hebrews. And so, uh, Paul wanted this for this church. So that's why he's, he's encouraging. He wants them faithful at Christ's return. This is something they're watching for. So again, we've gone through six chapters in Thessalonians. All of them, every reference to the coming of Christ is in fact the rapture. It is so important that we understand that because some people are going to try to make 2 Thessalonians 2 not about the rapture. And that is absolutely ridiculous. You have to ignore context. You just have to ignore English. Pretty much. So with that, let's pray to your Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the promises of your coming. And I pray, Lord, you'll help us to find inspiration by this Thessalonian church, Lord. Whenever we get feeling sorry for ourselves, Lord, we've, we've never faced anything near what this church faced. And so I pray that they'll uh, just encourage another generation to just continue being faithful. And I pray you will find us faithful at your return. In your name we pray. Amen. With that, let's all